A brief content warning. One of the chapters in the book we're discussing this episode contains themes of depression and suicide. If this is a topic that makes you uncomfortable and you'd like to skip, it begins around minute 31 of the podcast and lasts for a few minutes. Thanks. This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is our other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hello, Puka. It's waiting for you to do that one. I didn't I didn't get it quite right though, did I? I yeah. I'll try I'll try harder next time. Well, I'll I'll get you to say goodnight and then uh Huzzah. Huzzah. Burns and Allen. Anyway, so today we are going to do a deep dive review what do we call these a exploration yeah slogs a slog of freeholds and hidden glens the changeling first edition book that has like seven examples of various freeholds and or glens throughout concordia that you can use in your game yeah did you want do you want to start us off yeah it's written by a whole cavalcade of people which is pretty cool this is sort of the first source book written by committee i think and um lots of sort of the authors who would remain changeling mainstays throughout its run are involved which is pretty cool and i actually i just want to say briefly because we did talk about this i think i forget which episode we talked about this in um but the whole notion of having freeholds as one of the earliest source books kind of speaks to i think kind of two aspects of changeling first edition that are really important to bear in mind so first in the first edition where glamour is harder to come by and banality is everywhere and the fae are a lot more fragile freeholds are very important because it's where you go to recover and soak up glamour and hide from the world not too much but you know that's the place to do it and it also makes me think of when we've talked before about the theme of like community and found family and kinship that's very important for the folks on the sort of fringes like the changelings tend to be and having that kind of dedicated space in the form of a freehold or a hidden glen you know it's nice to see that centered i think but yeah that's my that's my soapbox moment and and those are definitely still things that are, it's not like they've been removed sure, yeah. from changeling but yeah it's a big focus from first edition enforced first edition yeah so we're going to go through each chapter alternatingly and I will start us off with Dwellers in the Mountain, which is the first freehold we get, centered in southeastern Kentucky in the foothills of Appalachia. So this was written by uh, Nikki Rea and Jackie Casada, who are sort of the, I think of them as long-term stewards of the line. They eventually were the developers for it. And they were, I think, based in Appalachia for the entirety of their time writing for White Wolf. So a lot of their work is centered in the area and they clearly are very knowledgeable about it the location they chose i did some judicious wikipediaing on this so laurel county kentucky it has about sixty thousand people it's heavily republican and it's the home of kentucky fried chicken so facts and there's some descriptions of the appalachian landscape that are very beautiful and lush with green forests and things and among the other things they talk about are the many rock formations, one of which is called High Castle Mountain. I'm not sure if this is actually a place or something they invented for the setting, but in each of these chapters, we get sort of this introductory geography, then a physical description of the layout and structure of the freehold in question, and then some history, some you know, random tidbits to use, then the characters involved, and then story hooks. In this case, the High Castle is a Fiona fortress that was abandoned centuries ago, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's sort of hidden from mortal eyes and, and fey eyes to a degree. There's reference to how it can only be seen by those who mean its residents no harm, and that the boulder that guards the gateway will move aside for any Fiona she who needs shelter. So it's definitely a Fiona freehold, Fiona run, Fiona enchanted freehold. But nearby, there's also what's called Tamlin's Glen, which is this clearing in the middle of the woods. 
And again, there's an enchantment that sort of keeps mortals and fae alike away, just kind of confuzzles them and does the sort of Blair Witch messing with geography thing to push them away. But those who have managed to get close to it see this ghostly fiddler figure who manifests in the moonlight and plays mournful tunes and stuff. So that's sort of the setting overall, and then the history of it. Now, there's this metaplot thread that in the days leading up to the shattering, a bunch of European she came across the Atlantic in trods to try and escape banality. It's kind of a pre-age of discovery colonization by the Kithane of what is now known as North America. And so there's kind of a, not a deep history of that in this book, but enough of it to, well, A, make me feel kind of awkward, B, you know, give some more context for the reason why there's a Fiona freehold in the middle of Kentucky that's centuries old. So Tamlin, the Fiona lord, led his people across the ocean, founded this castle where there was a place of natural glamour in the Appalachians, and then as the shattering hit, held open the gate to Arcadia so his people could escape, and then faded away into this ghostly fiddler. What I find complicated about it, I feel like we don't have enough time in this episode to do the deep dive into Nunahi issues that we keep saying we need to do, but... Oh, oh yeah, the, the, <laughs> that's every chapter I read as well. Uh, yeah. I have comments about it. Yeah, because these are all Concordian freeholds, so it's, you know, it's it's heavy in the air. But it's certainly, there's certainly a narrative that's being delivered here, and it's this notion of like, oh, the early Fae learned how to commune in peace with the Nunahi, and then that gave way to tension and warfare with the later, you know, arrivals. And, and it's just, it's the kind of thing which, I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but when you sit through elementary school history classes in the US, that's kind of the narrative that I was educated with. And as I grew older, learned how much I'd been left out. And that's what it reminds me of. In any case, the writers certainly try to make it work and they put in these references to things like the Fiona dug down into the mountain instead of expanding outward because they'd promised the Nunahi they wouldn't take more land, etc. So there is this awareness, you know, that at least kind of comes through a bit. The castle was sealed away against banality, the residents fled to Arcadia, and Tamlin became a lost one. And then we get a very brief two-paragraph history of actual colonization, the rise of industry and Appalachian coal mining, etc., which all still has a substantive impact on the region. More recently, the direct sort of story that they set up here is the enchantment that kept the castle hidden was worded so that it would be it would last until the silver lion returns in need once again. So once a Fiona in need stumbles across it again. And it just so happens that there is such a Fiona who fled with her Liam Oathbreaker lover from somewhere up north down to the Appalachians. Oh, 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 we should, we should be keeping a... People listening at home keep track of which of these stories have a Liam She somewhat prominent in it. Just as There's a whole five. bunch of them, aren't there? Yeah, every one I read. So, like, not a single Gwydion. Actually, not a single Dougal either, now that I'm thinking about it. So, yes, we have Lady Arian Ap Fiona and her lover Kinon of House Liam, and they were helped by three local commoners who are sort of maybe not stereotypical mountain people, but very, very solidly drawn from the, the culture of Appalachia or the perceived culture. So you have like the, the white-tailed deer, Puka, who's a musician. You have the Boggan grandma who lives in a trailer and makes moonshine. And then you've got the red cap biker who's a sculptor and they go to the crafts fairs and he participates in eating contests and uh, the Fiona and the Puka do music together. Uh, the grandma sells her moonshine and the Liam sells herbal remedies. So it's very much they exist as this group of, they call themselves the High Castle Crafters. And they're this little art and craft group that lives in the mountains and sort of pops up to participate in mountain mountain life, I suppose. I'm not an Appalachian expert, so I don't know if there's a name for that kind of way of being, but... It definitely has a feel, and yeah, it comes through, I will say. My impression of the chapter is that it was written with both love of the region and a desire to present it in a way that sort of breaks away from a lot of the stereotypes that people have. So it acknowledges the things like poverty and hardship and 
the landscape kind of being gutted by coal mining, but at the same time celebrates the things like the music and the camaraderie and the the gumption of the people. I appreciate that, you know? Yeah. I don't think it touches on a lot of issues that players nowadays might care more about, but overall it's a richly detailed freehold and a, a richly detailed setting, so what more could one ask for? Did you have any thoughts on this one? Or? No, I hadn't read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a lot of crossover stuff. I mean, they really yeah. packed it in. So there's yeah, like the only, there's a mage the, they hang out with. There's a vampire they know. You know, the the only odd number one I read was five because it wasn't. Mm. So next we have uh, chapter two, the Fool's Gambit. This is set in Boston. Boston is a place my fiance actually lives just outside of Boston, and I've visited there before, and I'm actually going to be visiting it within a week as of this recording, but I'm certainly not a Boston expert, but I, I did see some things that fit and some things I'm like, I'm not sure if that's different or just it's been many decades. So maybe things have changed. So th this is a, a freehold called the fool's gambit. It was founded in the 19th century by various commoners. And it was, actually played a pretty there's a backstory of all the different changelings that had run it um and going into up until the accordance war one of the owners of the place is killed the other ones like involved in fighting against the she it has a lot of actually the history chapter is very like the history section is very extensive about it in a way that's interesting i'm not sure how much of it you'd use or maybe but mm -hmm. um you know, it's, it didn't seem bad. There's two pictures of, for some reason, one of the characters looks exactly like Lando Calrissian. And I can't <laughs> why is he in this Boston pub? But <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a group, about a group of, she called the son, what's not she, a group of commoners, not really know about she, called the Sons of Liberty. They're the the owner of the freehold at the time, at writing she's sort of the leader of the Sons of Liberty. And they're worried that the big conflict set up against a she count who's going up against you know who's like been trying to take over the area since the accordance war and uh, a lot of tensions there also a lot of getting into the revolutionary war with definitely rose-colored glasses i mm -hmm. get the impression that's pretty common in the u.s in general also you know there's she cops in it a she uh, there's a on the side of the sons of liberty there's actually a disgraced liam she who decided to side with the also, there's a Malkavian in the group who's pretending to be a Cathane. Not quite sure how she does it, but uh, there was a thing about this riddle contest at the side, which is like a festival every 4th of July. I thought that was pretty cool. I loved that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I really liked as an idea. But that's something you can import even somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's like one little interesting thing where they talk about, basically this was an anti-Seely book in some way, because it was talking about the Seely court as being the she nobility and fighting against it even among Seely commoners but that's an interesting little thread that goes through changeling a lot keeping track of the sides of everything mm -hmm. every conflict so yeah like personally it definitely is an interesting it, it is a useful conflict i think to set things around and it would be a good section for that you know you could argue like did they need that much word count on the history maybe not but they did get really into it didn't they yeah, and it's just, it's like, okay, you're having, like, a page worth of stuff that happened in the 19th century, and it, considering the length of it, that compared to what would be relevant today, what it has is relevant, and I think I, I think you could definitely use this, so. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say, it was written by Jennifer Lindberg. I did notice, there were just a couple moments that I, like, did double takes on. There's one character who has a sword that does strength plus five aggravated damage, and I had to kind of read that a few times before I was sure that I was reading it correctly. That's that's quite a sword, you know? It's aggravated, really, I think, that puts it over on that. Yeah, yeah. And it's a troll, so strength plus five is a lot. So. <laughs> yep. And he's also a Liam-affiliated troll. Go figure. Yeah, that's, I think all of these have Liam prominent. Yeah. There's also, there's a misspelling of the Irish greeting, Cade Mila Falcha, which just kind of breaks my heart to see. <laughs> Because it's the kind of thing, I mean, I've only been to Boston once, but, you know, there's that very strong Irish presence there. And I feel like you could walk into any Irish pub and immediately find a sign that says that just to double check the spelling. Mm. So I feel like it's unforgivable. But 
Oh, I just realized they never had a stat block for the Duke. And I'm not sure what house the Duke belongs to. Probably Liam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Liam versus Liam. When in doubt, it's probably Liam. Mm-hmm. So then chapter three is Goblin Town by Chris Howard. And I'm unfairly biased in favor of this one as someone who's, you know, grown up relatively close to New York City, who lived there for several years and has family there and has been back and forth there for many more years, played in a New York City based changeling game, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm deeply invested in the New York freehold. Unlike the others, this opens with a piece of metaplot sidebar fiction. We get the death of High King Davith, who was the High King initially after the resurgence, and David Ardrey became High King upon his death. So we see his full death scene here. One of the things that's really interesting about this is as he dies, he, he lays a curse on Goblin Town, who is the knocker freehold that has betrayed him and betrayed him to the commoners who stabbed him in the back, quite literally. Uh, and as he gives up Caliburn, which will then find its way to David Ardry, there's this manifestation of the Lady of the Sword. And I can't recall any other time we see that figure, but it sort of implies that this is like the guardian of Caliburn, and it's the active you know, intelligence that's directing where the sword goes. So that was does really... She go, uh, does she go in a lake at any point? I assume she must, yeah. So it also it also says 1969 in the header, but I'm pretty sure he's supposed to have died in 1974. And anyway, I'm not going to get into the meta plot, you know, stuff. We get some descriptions of the freehold itself. This is maybe my second favorite freehold in the entire game. The way it's described is that it's a Chinese puzzle, a constantly shifting paradox and a matter of grave concern for most Sealy Cathane in the New York area. So it's a semi-conscious freehold, which I find really cool. It has like living architecture that's constantly mutating and changing. And it is a stronghold for knockers in particular, although there are other kiths represented. So they're constantly expanding and digging, and it's all kind of worked in among the subways and subterranean infrastructure of New York City. It's supposed to be uh, directly located under the Chrysler building, but extends all throughout midtown Manhattan. And even though it shares its name with Goblin Town from Tolkien's The Hobbit, there are references to M.C. Escher drawings as being kind of the more appropriate visualization. So stairways going in all kinds of gravity-defying directions and tunnels looping in on themselves in ways that are impossible, that whole kind of thing. And then a lot of references to sort of a steampunk aesthetic, which is kind of a neat thing to combine. They mentioned that the layout changes regularly from being sort of like a crab to being a series of interlocking rings and that it cycles through this those layouts over the course of like a year. It is an unsealy knocker freehold in particular, and this is important. There are references to how they abduct the homeless to do some of their heavy lifting and construction. And this, I think, serves as a good reminder that changelings can be assholes. There are despicable changelings out there. There are changelings who have nothing but contempt for mortals and will kidnap them, ravage them, and dump them on the street, much like many of the fairies of old. So, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows in changeling land. So there's that. Then we get some of the history. We're told that this sort of warren was first dug by Dr. Zachary Tapp, who was a mad knocker architect that came over in the days of New Amsterdam in the 1600s, and that he had discovered um, what are called the Black Crystal Caverns under Manhattan. And that was a source of massive glamour. So he wanted to build this warren to kind of interact with it. So the history section does rehash the sort of myth of settlers buying Manhattan for $24 that has been disproven and like challenged over and over again. And it also suggests that the Nunahi only wanted to regain control of the island because of that source of glamour underground, which sort of sidelines the whole issue of colonization. Again, some problematic history stuff in here. And then the next 300 years of history are just kind of skipped right over. So we go straight from Dr. Tapp arrived to build this knocker, mystical, you know, underground complex to the Accordance War, with very little attention to the intervening time. 
So during the Accordance War, Goblin Town publicly supported High King Davith and was a place where he visited and took respite and everything. And then his ward, Alexandria, betrayed him and the commoners came and stabbed him in the back. So that's their infamy in changeling society. The Freehold itself is full of tricks and traps. So most of these are riddle puzzles where if you answer the riddle correctly, you might win a prize. You get some piece of knocker tech. If you answer incorrectly or you trigger a security trap, you might be covered in a shower of molten iron. Not so fun. And because the layout is constantly changing, only the most sensible knockers, the chief of whom is the master builder, well, not chief, the one who is the most knowledgeable about the layout and the workings of the freehold. The chief is a separate figure. We have a couple curses that are on the freehold. So there's the chaotic nature of the glamour that it draws upon causes things like unpredictable changes to the connections of hallways and rooms. There are devious chimera who pop up and harass the residents. And ultimately, Dr. Tapp's design was flawed. Instead of harnessing the glamour of those caverns, the freehold actually kind of fractures it and causes it to become more chaotic. And then, of course, the death curse of the High King caused uh, more agitation. So... It's a place that is wild and chaotic and falling apart at the seams, and they're struggling to hold it together. There are some other tidbits about how the knockers conduct their actual business through an auxiliary space, which is Fulton Fish Market. And if they actually get down to the caverns, which are several hundred feet underground, they often show the Kithane their worst nightmares, and that can push them into bedlam, or in worst case scenarios, actually erase dots of abilities and knowledges. There's also a malevolent chimerical being called the Ghastly that has this sort of symbiotic relationship with the residents. And we get stuff about New York politics. Taranar, the seat of the High King, is just across the Hudson River, and the Winter Palace is in Manhattan as well. So there's some close connections with the royal court. We have things like alliances with the Society of Ether and the commoner ranters who are anti-nobility. There's hostility with the Bonars and the Dantain for preying on the homeless. And then this random Ventru who wants to destroy the Freehold. And it makes me think about how Changeling, more than all the other games, maybe, seems really invested in creating these sort of crossover supergroups. I don't know if that's because it was the fifth of the main games. So, you know, they felt, okay, all the main games are out. Now we have to put them all together. In these source books, you often get like, here's this motley and here's the, the one vampire, one werewolf, one mage, and one wraith they all hang out with. So the personages are Cadmium Red, who's sort of like the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland, but turning into a Dante. And this also came out before the Autumn People, which gave us specifics about that process. So you just get lines like she's addicted to banality and has learned to use it in place of glamour. And these are things that have become more formalized when the Autumn People came out. You have Dr. Coma, who's a beatnik slua seer. Isaac Glass, who's the master builder. I'm not entirely clear why the master builder is not the changeling in charge of the freehold, but I guess that's politics for you. Um, and then we don't have a Liam here, but we have an evil Fiona, like a shadow court Fiona, which is a, I suppose, fairly rare thing. And this is Alexandria, the ambassador slash secret assassin who betrayed her foster dad and her scumbag beloved rat breath, the red cap. So there's a few story hooks. The players might activate a self-destruct sequence by accident in the Freehold. There might be conflict with uh, mundane New York City, who is building a subway through where the Freehold is located, which is actually true to life now that the Second Avenue subway is being built. There's the suggestion that maybe one of the homeless who gets abducted is a kinane, and so the players have to get into Goblin Town to rescue them. And there's lots of um, possibilities like that. Really, the entire chapter is full of these story hooks that connect with both the general meta plot and individual chronicles. Ones that are set in New York will benefit the most from it, but I think you could have this kind of freehold in any sort of major city. And it's also what I think of as sort of classic Chris Howard writing, where there's just lots and lots of ideas very densely packed in. There's not a lot of detail about the individual characters and the historical background, but you get these sort of beautiful descriptions and lots of ideas for things to work in. Yeah, it's a very rich chapter. Okay, 
Uh, next we have chapter four. Uh, I always pronounce it Greymare, so Greymare Glen, by Richard Dansky, uh, more known for his being developer of Wraith the Oblivion. And it does actually start out with a ghost story without any wraiths in it. So this is set in a ghost town in Connecticut called Dudley Town, which has a, a glen that's a wellspring of glamour that's been tainted by combination of lead and just all kinds of ghost stories and horror stories about it. It's a very dark glen, I guess I'd put it. It has things like moving, creepy, weeping willows, trees moving around in it and things like that. The glen, the town next to the glen had basically died out at one point due to various factors. It was an industrial town, a tin mining town. And, but then eventually like changelings were kind of in there because of the very, it's like an extremely powerful source of glamour there. A bit too powerful in some ways. You have these two very long-lived childling puka living there. And it makes a lot of emphasis about how they don't wear clothes, which is a bit odd, but uh, it's guarded by these, like these very old uh, chimera called schnorflers, I believe. The unfortunately named Schnorflers. Yeah, I mean, now that I say it out loud, yeah, it's definitely unfortunately named. You have, like, a story centered around the Accordance War, where, like, some she who were cops came in and were, like, chasing down a group of hippie commoners, and then the Schnorflers came and took out the she and sort of protected the commoners, you know, along with the the two puka who had sort of were like the children of the, like the last group of people to live there. And you have sort of that's the backstory. And then you have Lady Sasha of, you guessed it, House Liam was a archeology, span just doing like her archeology span PhD, I believe it was, and has come in to study the town. And that sort of tied into her because her family was originally from there, went through a chrysalis and is running it. But like, she very emphasizes that she doesn't really run the place so much as serves a place in the, the whole pageantry of it all. And, you know, things like the, the Glen definitely approves. It's, it's also somewhat alive Glen that approves of her and will do things like turn solid at certain festivals so people can dance on it. But if it doesn't like you, it might drown you. Awesome. Yep. And then it gets into some backstory here with, uh, there's a, a, uh, Fiona, evil Fiona. Another one. Evil, unseely Fiona. It's like, did they compare notes? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, he's, he's trying to seduce her to, to basically take over the Glen, but she thinks he just has a thing for her. Another interesting character is a really old Slua Grump, who's like basically a drug dealer, but he's from like, and has, and has a little bit of a sideboard on, bar on like, glamour-infused drugs. You know, a few other characters built in has an issue that, you know, it's like, oh, here's the non-white character, let's make them an issue kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's had interesting mentions of things like there's she, like, that she will incarnate based on their heritage, which I can't remember if that's a thing normally, or took over based on it. Oh, yeah, there's also, we're going on the the whole thing, it has another Nunehe, problematic Nunehe elements, and also, it's rumors of pre-Columbian Norse settlers, although that's a bit less problematic, I think, because there were Norse people in North America. Generally not in Connecticut, though. Yeah, but it doesn't actually say they were there. It's more like yeah. there's a story of them, too. Yeah. And yeah, so like it has some story ideas basically around the plot of people taking over and whatnot. I, I don't know how much this could be. In, this would have to be you are setting the game here. Because it's another mm-hmm. place that kind of hides itself away and is a bit hard to get to if you're not supposed to be there. So it's like, it doesn't feel like a thing you could drop into another game as so much as you have to make this game around it. And then I'm not sure how much is there to make a game around, if that makes sense. But I mean, it's got some, yeah. definitely got some little interesting ideas and whatnot. But yeah. Oh, also the sa- the lake performs a saning. The only, there was only one witness to it besides the person being saned on. And it's like, won't describe what that looked like. And now I just really want to know what a lake performing a saning looks like. You don't get baptized in it. It just baptizes you. Yeah. It, it sounded even more disturbing than that, though. <laughs> it just kind of slurps over the banks. Uh, okay. 
Yeah, it it also struck me as a setting that was really filtered through the personalities of its residents, which makes it difficult to use. Like it's too tied to its own built-in story. Yeah, It, it, it provides for me a lot of ideas I could take and put into another setting. Like mm-hmm. another a game, a changeling game set somewhere else. Yeah, because the idea of a ghost town is really, really yeah. great as an idea, and it's got like a lot of ghost stories without ghosts going on, which I think is a place that, that seems like a bit of an untapped well in changeling. We haven't talked really about Stephen King as an inspiration, but a lot of his works when he kind of does these you know, places or objects that have this very subtle, dark intelligence that works really, really well for dark glamour as a concept. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes through maybe, especially yeah, because the, it's a new England setting. Yeah. This lake's definitely a Stephen King character that works. Yeah. Cool. So for the next chapter, we have to preface by saying that there is a bit of a content warning. This chapter involves some descriptions of suicide. So if it's the kind of thing that you would prefer not to listen to, we recommend that you skip about eight minutes ahead. So chapter five is Florist Primeval, which is a terrible pun, but I'm here for it. Uh, This is by Alan Tower, and our setting is Savannah, Georgia, which I've never been to, but given the description of this freehold, it seems like it would be really tough to keep this place hidden from mortals. It's this large, enclosed sort of parkland estate in apparently the downtown of savannah and it's just very lush with with flowers and trees and all sorts of plants growing and it's very landscaped with hills and paths and beautiful buildings it's unclear exactly how large it is and i'd be fine with it kind of being like a tardis park just larger on the inside than from the outside but i don't know it's very sensory as well there's a lot of attention given to the details of the smells and the sounds and are all of the senses kind of being engaged kithane feel an immaculate sense of belonging we're told there's a lot of i think secret garden inspiration here there's a tragic love story behind the environment of this place and the centerpiece of it there's this orchid house that seems to attract changelings to it and an unfinished hedge maze that everyone is forbidden from entering except the she-lady of the freehold. And just as a side note, this comes up a lot in the southern settings, but whenever a place is described as having something like wrought iron gates, like a freehold with wrought iron gates, as in this this example, I just think, how is that? how does that work? I, I thought that actually kind of, when you when it describes at the beginning of entering it, it's like it felt like there's no glamour outside the gates, and then you pass through the iron gates, which were not constructed by a changeling. Yeah, it's like everything's inside it, and it's like containing the glamour. Is what it felt. I like. suppose that's true, and maybe that's what keeps people from being drawn to it. So, well, in any case, so the story of the freehold kind of fits the the definition of tragedy in the classic sense. It's people making increasingly poor choices on the basis of their kind of tragic flaws into a situation that could have been avoided if they had just kind of communicated better or, you know, tried to overcome their flaws. The situation is that Lady Una Morrowind, who's the leader of the Freehold, she arrived on Earth as a student at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and she was like a muse for a lot of the artists there, but eventually met this mortal named Arthur, who was a dreamer through the medium of essentially landscaping. So he would create these beautiful gardens. um, And when he met his eventual wife, Una, he tried to create these beautiful spaces for her. And what ended up happening was they reminded her too much of Arcadia. She went further and further into melancholy, which made him more and more desperate to please her. And it kind of created this spiral where he became more obsessed and more frustrated, and she became more lost in her own melancholy memories until finally he committed suicide by hanging himself when, you know, he just one night decided that he was never going to be able to make her as happy as he wanted. And since then, uh, she's kind of been very reclusive. She's kind of this archetype, almost like the rich widow, where everybody knows about the beauty of her freehold and you know she's a she noble so she's very beautiful and all these suitors kind of come and try to win her hand but she keeps to herself and shuts herself away 
and wanders through the hedge maze and talks to her husband's ghost. And that's a thing because this is the world of darkness and ghosts come back. Yeah. We mentioned crossover before. I thought this is one situation where it does not feel forced at all. Like having yeah. him as a ghost. And that's the only crossover. It's not like here's her dead husband. And then here's also the vampire who hangs out there. So little side question. What, uh, what house is she? Well, I think she might be. <laughs> she is indeed a Liam. She so hmm. yet another one. I don't know. Maybe they just decided the Liam, I guess are the more relatable ones because they're the common yeah, lovers. It's, it seems like it's the, Every man, it's like, yeah, it's like okay, th- this house has a personality, <laughs> right? And if it, if you really fit that st- archetype, y- you make that character that house. Yeah. And if you don't, you're Liam. That's that's how the book reads to me. That's, a, that's how they picked houses. That sounds that sounds about right. Yeah. So we don't actually get really any information about Savannah proper in the mortal world, and we only get a little bit of local politics. We get information about how Una apparently foiled this plot by the shadow court to assassinate some seely noble and that's like put her in the good graces of the i forget if it's a baron or a duke and that's how she received the right to have this freehold and why she's allowed to kind of keep to herself and keep people away but aside from that it's really just this love story and information about the characters involved in it and we get three full pages of information about una which i think is the most i've seen for any single character maybe in any World of Darkness book. Like, this is more than High King David gets. So we have her entire life story. So then we have Arthur Lawrence, who's her ghost husband, and is still kind of hovering around the grounds, interacting with the other members of the Freehold when he can. There's Nathan, who's a mortal artist that Una tried to start musing until she discovered that he actually had basically no talent anymore. He's very bitter about it and resents her for discovering Wait, this. Is this where the seed of Rhapsody came from? Do you mm. think maybe Like an accidental Rhapsody. Yeah. Yeah, it's unclear exactly how and when he burned out, but she was too late to take advantage of his actual talent. Then there's Douglas Biggins, the loyal troll who kind of... He's the bodyguard, but also he's the one who keeps the florist aspect, the actual business side of the Freehold active. So... He keeps the doors open. Then we have Garrett, who is another she, and he's sort of a Lancelot figure who's courting Una because he believes in courtly love. Twyla, who's this sort of puka jester, if we're going with the court metaphor. She has the best treasure ever, which is the lunchbox of wonders. So there's that. It's not really the best treasure ever. I just like that it's the lunchbox of wonders. And then Dion, who's this issue con artist type, and we're given information that he actually exacerbated Arthur's emotional distress and presumably drove him to suicide. And that was in retaliation against Una for foiling that assassination plot. So he's a shadow court operative and he found this opportunity for revenge and took it. At the same time, he seems smitten with the Puka Jester girl. So, you know, you have these conflicting loyalties, I suppose. I was trying to go through what all of the tragic flaws of the characters are. So, like, you have self-defeating melancholy for Una, and then obsession for Arthur, and then bitter self-loathing for Nathan, the mortal artist. It's like each character has their own way that they've engaged with this tragic story. And I actually really like that, because this presents a very almost Shakespearean alternative to the sort of hero's journey model that we've been served up repeatedly at this point. And I think that's important to have. That being said like the Connecticut one, it is a freehold that you can't just kind of drop into a story. You know, it kind of comes preloaded with all of its deep character motivations and relationships and all of the story hooks kind of circle back to that. I I found this one the most, there's a phenomenon I've heard people describe as NPC theater. Mm, Yeah. Various scenarios or games that might, it's, unless you're actually playing these characters provided in the there's not a lot for the PCs to do besides just watch this drama. On yeah, board. exactly. So it's a it's a compelling story, but not. I mean, this is definitely not the only example in White Wolf or or any gaming books, especially in the '90s. But like, this definitely has happened in other scenarios. But yeah, I would say it's good for like a a one off filler adventure in the middle of a larger chronicle when you just need some you know a break. 
Yeah, and then it would have a lot of depth to it. I yeah, guess, some backstory. Yeah, and with the suicide piece, I do think again, kind of like with Goblin Town residents abducting homeless people, it's another indication of how changelings can be real assholes. Yeah, that one wasn't intentional. That felt more very human. What happened in a way? Well, the way it's presented from Dion's point of view is that he sort of saw this opportunity and took it and didn't really think about the consequences and maybe now is feeling more guilt than he thought he would, which, you know, depending, depending on how deeply a troop wants to get into these issues, it's good because it's not treating it lightly. On the other hand, is that really a direction that you want to explore for a character? As an antagonist, it makes him more complex, but yeah. Yeah. Another thing in this, it also had the the way the Nunahi were in this even more than in the other parts was just they were there to be monsters attacking and us. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> yeah. Not not great. But it sounds like a very lovely place. So next we have uh, chapter six, Gangster's Hideaway. Speaking of lovely places. Yes. Now this is, I have thoughts on this. <laughs> so this is, so, some disclaimers, I am... About as far as from objective as you can get on this chapter in in multiple ways. I grew up first 20 years of my life about seven blocks from where this is set. So this is a real place. The gangster's hideaway. I can't, I haven't sat down to try to like looking at a map and seeing if this, but it definitely is very for that part of Toronto makes sense. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that when I first read it, but even more I'm going into this. So Chris Hind who wrote this. I don't know his backstory. The way he's presenting it, he definitely understands that area of Toronto. Uh, at the time, it was technically part of North York, and that would have made a big difference to people then, but it's all Toronto now anyway. And and he really doesn't like it. And it's in a way that I've encountered a lot of Canadians don't like Toronto. Hmm. Usually people not from it originally say they're from a small town or something. or from Toronto is the biggest city in Canada. It gets... Not the same, but it's like similar attention from Canadians that New York would get from Americans. Mm -hmm. And so he presents this as an extremely banal place where nothing happens. And I don't think that's a personally a great characterization of Toronto, but it also fits yeah, a lot of people I know. And I just find it interesting how much he, but he does seem to understand the area. So he must have lived there for a while, I think, or visited family there frequently or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that area is, the geography of Toronto is full of ravines and whatnot from the ice ages. So what you get is the city, but there's all kinds of undeveloped ravine valleys, all the ravines, like valleys and mm -hmm. things throughout going throughout the city that can even be a little bit hard to spot, but then like you can go through there and some of them are like built up trails maintained by the city and some of it's like very not maintained at all. And yeah, so I grew, it's in the Dawn Valley specifically where this is, which is where I lived as well. The specific little valley is, yeah, Tangled Valley. Yeah. So I don't know of any place called that, but it was very specific little location. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it. It's also my, when I first got into Changeling, as I mentioned before, was through LARPing in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing going through this, just how much of the LARP setting was taken directly from this chapter <laughs> um, in the game I played in. It does have a lot, a lot of background, useful I'd say the background is very useful for Toronto now. There's a bit of history, but it's more on what things are at, at the time of the game of the book. The chapter starts out talking basically about some mortal child and what it would be like to go and basically stumble across this freehold and then kind of it freaks the kid out and he runs away kind of thing. And that's a good... It, it felt like my childhood. A lot of like coming across this. Though I don't know if I would have run away as much. It's also interesting that just on a meta changeling metaphysics perspective, it, it has like a mundane side of the freehold and a chimerical aspect. And the chimerical aspect is much bigger inside than the mundane aspect. The story, yeah, it's called The Gangster's Hideaway, built by some childlings in the 1950s. And then it's been sort of maintained by childlings ever since and passed on to new generations of childlings over time. Uh, it's along a place called the Endless Trod, which is this strange trod going through the 
park to who knows where. There's some story hooks later about it. Uh, and it's also this trod will deposit, like things get lost in the world and they'll end up here along the trod. And it can be found, you can find dross or other strange items or treasures or all sorts of things. So yes, yeah, set around the current group of toddlings who sort of have the gangsters hide away. There is also though, there's a uh, grump Liam She who lives right next to it. How about that? And keeps and uh, sort of takes you. Although this one definitely feels more like a Liam. He's like disgraced, possibly an oathbreaker, Lord Varlin. Uh, he's an exiled noble for things that happened in before his his previous life, and he doesn't actually remember it. But largely kicked out of the noble society for it. You have a few characters called the gangsters. There's an issue, so of course he's black. There's a little knocker, a satyr childling girl who's got lots of horns on her head. I don't quite understand the picture there. Neat little kids-themed treasures. Then you also have a biker who's a red cap, but he's not. He's still just early in his dream dance, like just sort of went through his chrysalis and doesn't really believe it. And it's one of the plots is he's going banal. And what's interesting is in this area, I can't remember if it's exactly to the block, but at the time, I remember going off a little old road that wasn't really maintained going into the valley. There was a biker hangout that was pretty scary mm-hmm. and had like keep out signs and things like that. I'm like, wow, this just, yeah, it like fits in a lot. Yeah. There's also a feathered serpent that kind of shows up. Not really sure what it's, doesn't really get clear what it's for, but it's just sort of plot hooky, bring people involved. So yeah, the, the, the structure is very much, this seems a lot more focused on things you could do with characters in it and dropping, either playing these childlings or dropping in other childlings could also really work for camping, but it can also, you come across this place and a lot of travelers do say pass by this, this freehold because of the, the trod next to it. Yeah. And then some of the, yeah, some of the things there, one of them is there's a one the, it exploring the endless trod. And I had a thing where it talks about, it can go to the near Umbra mm-hmm. and there's Galane inhabitants ready to invade the earth there. And I was trying to make sense of what that meant <laughs> a little bit. Dark kin perhaps. Yeah. And of course it has an obligatory little bit about Nunahi can be violent in attack, but uh, didn't get too much into it. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. The other thing about the, the Liam, she, He's like 50 or 60 or something like that, which is very old for a changeling. And uh, he's described as being not very handsome. So he only has appearance four. Only four. I found that interesting. Yeah. But yeah, this this setting, again, I'm biased, but if I run a changeling game again and I'm setting it in where I grew up, I mean, I'm grabbing a lot of this for it, I think. Because, yeah, it reminds me of home. I got, I got pretty nostalgic about it. Yeah. Even though I don't agree with the banal interpretation it does say most torontonians have been out readings of ratings of six to eight so it seems like a fairly banal city <laughs> yeah i that part i don't agree with and yeah. i mean i don't know i don't know toronto now because i moved out 20 years ago and i've been back but i haven't lived there since then but in this time period i was basically the age of these childlings and yeah it that experience is my experience of toronto yeah not yeah, my point of reference in relation to Changeling for Toronto is the Charles DeLint Newford series, because I think that's supposed to be like Toronto-ish. Yeah, I think some of it was explicit. He did write some things explicitly set in Toronto. Yeah, but when he decided to create his own fictional city, that was like... Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, you know, if I were to set a game in Toronto, that's what I would draw from. But I like that this... You know, a lot of the descriptions I do think are kind of universal childlingish experiences, like that idea of going exploring in the woods when you're 10 with your friends and you find all this detritus mm-hmm. in the woods and you're like, where did this come from? And there must be an endless trod that's just collecting things from everywhere and dumping yeah. it here, you know? Yeah. And that is the, the, the whole thing because it's, it's these set of rivers that go through Toronto and Toronto's kind of built up around them, but they're still there. That's yeah also very much the experience of that yeah so they got the geography he got the geography dead on i can say that yeah i have to say the thing the thing that i liked the thing that i was really skeeved out by and the thing that i just found amusing in this chapter so one of the art pieces is this photo of random objects like socks and keys and thumbtacks and tickets but they're all arranged on top of the player's guide to the sabbat which i thought was amusing because that's (laughs) that's something you'd find in the woods there is so when talking about that 
satyr childling there's probably no sentence yeah. in the entirety of the game that skews me out more than for a 13 year old diane is well developed i was like ew, 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 ew. yeah yeah i i yeah more content warning yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and then i was just kind of amused by because this is before the player's guide so formally we don't yet have secondary abilities in changeling and yet we have things like the wild knocker changeling has improvised missile three the bike courier has ride bicycle three so that was a that was a wise use of dots um I suppose. Oh, I haven't gone through any of these NPCs also to figure out if you'd have stats that way, but that's a... Yeah. But yeah, overall, not having ever been to Toronto, I'm, I'm glad that it summoned some, some glamour for you. Yeah, especially that neighborhood where I was. But I mean, they talk about the Revolutionary War in the Boston chapter, and right here was where the rebellion in Canada was in this area, right really close to that. And, and no mention of it. And just, oh, nothing, just saying nothing happens. In Alas. So shall we talk about the last chapter? Yes. I had mentioned that Goblin Town is my second favorite freehold in all of Changeling. This chapter has my favorite freehold in all of Changeling. So this is Terabinthia by Kevin Andrew Murphy, who I think wrote the Penny Dreadful Mage novel. That's the first thing that I associate with Kevin Andrew Murphy. I'm not sure what else he's written for White Wolf, but... Uh, and this is set at University of California, Santa Cruz. So just as a brief anecdote, when I was a college student and I was looking at graduate schools, there was an occasion when I was in California with my family and we were staying in the Bay Area, but my mother agreed to drive me to Santa Cruz so that I could look at the school. And when you drive to Santa Cruz, you go through this winding road through the mountains that's all covered with redwood trees and full of fog it's really dangerous. There's lots of like crashes there apparently, but it's like you're driving through the branches and just as you go around each bend, it's all, it's all dark and there are shapes in the mist, all of this stuff. And then as you come out of it, it's like you're overlooking the coast and it's just all sunlight and you can see the water stretched out in front of you and the towns are sort of laid out below you because you're still up in the mountains. And it's just one of the most awe-inspiring sights that I've ever seen. So that's what I associate with Santa Cruz in my mind. And that, you know, that feeling. There's also things like the Lost Boys film, and I get that that's a point of reference for people too. But when I was reading this chapter the first time around, you know, that was that was sort of the inspiration that I connected with it. But essentially what we're looking at here is a small patch of forest that is located on the college campus. And we have an interesting story situation here where one freehold is actually kind of being torn down. It's being threatened by development and the residents are quickly trying to transfer all of the balefire and all of the magic to another site, which is not something you see in progress a lot within Changeling books. You kind of get stories about that, but not in Medias Race. And there is, I said magic, because this is a heavy mage crossover freehold. You have a motley of changelings and then a full-on cabal of mages that are involved. In the same way that a changeling motley will often draw in different kiths, it is a cross-tradition group of mages. So they all hang out, and it's a place that is sustained by both changeling arts and true magic. And I think of it almost like chaos magic in a lot of ways, in that sort of formal use of the term, because the descriptions that were given, we have these sort of little individual hollows within the glade that have names of like the Grove of Mirrors and the Descent into Hell, the Bridge to Heaven, and it's all decorated with marbles and string and used candles and all these sort of found objects. So there's something about that creation of meaning and spaces turned into ritual grounds and the sort of anarchic kinship between these changelings and the mages that I really love. It's something that whenever I encounter that in my life, I want to be nearer that. And when I think, what freehold would I want to be part of? It is absolutely this one. So I have deep feels about it. Interestingly, we don't get a lot about California or the at the same time as this book was coming out you had the toy box coming out so you had a very thorough overview of central California and the bay area so maybe they just felt oh we don't need all of that backstory here we don't need to talk about duke so and so and the politics mm -hmm. so it does feel very 
self-contained to the point that this could be any college campus. Maybe not any college campus, but any college campus that has like students with that kind of vibe and that kind of landscape worked in. You could easily transplant this to some, some other place. In that regard, it's similar to the Flores Primeval one, but the characters are so much more fun because it's not that Shakespearean high tragedy and it's more just bombastic adventurousness. And you do get, we actually have some Kiefer Sutherland fan art on one page. So there is a direct Lost Boys connection because they do reference the fact that Santa Cruz was the murder capital of the US for a while. And that also, of course, presents an opportunity to cross over with wraiths. So we have references to that. But the the mages are much more represented here. So I guess this counts as another mage changeling crossover along with Isle of the Mighty. Absolutely. And it's before Isle of the Mighty too, so it's our first one. We have some chunky chimera, one of whom is actually an umbrood who's kind of faking it as a chimera. I think my favorite chimera maybe in the entire game is Plato the Banana Slug, who is the mascot of the university. And I think I like him because he has one very specific power that is incredibly powerful, which is he knows everything about the university. And the examples they give are, this ranges from the personal politics and private lives of all the students and faculty to each word in every book in the McHenry Library and all the unpublished research notes of the university professors and graduate students, including what can be accessed through the internet. That's a massive power. And as an ally, that would be a very potent chimera to have on your side. We do have a non-Liam Shi, which is a rarity in this book. So we have an Eileen Chi who is much more egalitarian than most of her peers. She's like, yeah, I'm going to let the troll decide what we do. So there's the troll who's the true leader of the Freehold. We do have, I think, our first Nunahi NPC. So this is before the different Nunahi kits were established. So he's just Nunahi. And he seems to be kind of like a rattlesnake puka. And he's described in uncomfortable, exoticizing ways. And then we have my favorite mage, which is Dustin Carver. Uh, he is a mage who believes he's a fairy. So he's a Verbena marauder in quiet. He thinks sometimes he's an elf, sometimes he's a Vulcan, sometimes he's a lost boy from Peter Pan. And he has a photon crossbow made by the dwarven smiths of the Mines of Moria and the Imperial Klingon weapons makers. That's the kind of mage that I'd like to hang out with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we have a couple Selkies, and that's basically it. So again... Wait, was this the intro of the Selkies? No, that, that was a... So the, the Selkies first appeared in the toy box, which was just okay. before this one. Okay. These are the first Selkie NPCs that we see. So that's, that's the end of the chapter, though. We get sort of deep description of the freehold and the extensive description of the characters and their interactions with each other but very little about the broader setting and very few story hooks. So I think unlike the Flars Primeval one, this can be transplanted much more easily because you don't really need character drama to be involved in your own chronicle. You can just kind of incorporate this setting however it fits best with your group. That's how it strikes me anyway. And it reminds me of a lot of people who I have known and know and are very dear to me, so I like it. And it makes me long for the Redwoods. It's your nostalgia chapter. It is, which is weird because like the Goblin Town one should be because I actually lived there. And yet it doesn't have that. Maybe because the people in Goblin Town, the changelings in Goblin Town are by and large awful. And they're not, mm. you wouldn't want to spend any time with them. Yeah. And then we have the last chapter, the appendix, mm. which not a lot to say about it. It's introducing some extra rules for a freehold, like how you own it and rules for glades and reaving and permanent cantrips and some stuff on trods. I'm pretty sure these rules get, it seemed like pretty much the same rules get used in the second edition yeah. core book. And then in the C20 freehold book and probably a bunch of other places. So it's, this is, I think where they started, but yeah, the freeholds C20 book expands dramatically on these. But... Oh yeah. But it's, it, I don't think it contradicts this. No, no, no. I'm actually a little bit annoyed when I see, so like the permanent cantrips, for example, it sort of implies that fey magic is a lot more fluid than we're given access to in terms of arts and realms. And we see a lot of this with like, when these freeholds are described, they have these very unique enchantments kind of laid over them. And you think, wow, how did they do that with chicanery or whatever? And 
it doesn't really give you any options for flexing the magic in that way. With C20, you have unleashing. Yeah, but you still don't have tre- like treasures of the same thing. You still don't get... Yeah, yeah. And it just makes you wonder, what is... There's a step missing between the character sheet or the structure of fey magic that we're given as players and storytellers, and then the narrative descriptions of how that shakes out within the setting. And it's like... Mm-hmm. It's up to us to figure out how to fill in the gaps, not only with objects, but also places. So I don't know. I guess it's fine. Uh, one little mention. You have, you, have, you have the hard copy of this, right? I do. So unlike the previous books that I'd been using, the PDFs from DriveThruRPG4, this one's been redone, has actual text throughout it, although there's a few little typographic errors from that, I think. And it has a basically advertisement for Onyx Path from for spring <laughs> 2012 and stuff like that in it. Wow! So that's so it's a slightly different. Just interesting that this one was redone, but the other ones I had aren't. Actually, if you wait one second, I'll tell you what the original had was. Well, in the original book, we have Vampire Dark Ages available in March and Mage: The Ascension Second Edition in stores in December, which is awesome. That's funny because I thought Mage had already come out at that point, but perhaps not. Well, second edition had. I know. I know Vampire Second had. Well, Vampire Second was ninety three. I thought Mage had come out earlier in ninety five, but I suppose not. Well, some there has definitely been. There's there's strange time effects or the mists or something have been messing with Changeling book publication. Absolutely true. With because I'm pretty sure there's at least one case of like. If you look at three different books, they're all advertising each other. Yes. Like in... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so overall, what's your assessment of Freeholds and Hidden Glens? I mean, there's def- I like it. There's good chapters. Definitely, I think, worth... If you're running a game and wanting some setting things, it's definitely worth picking up the PDF. Yeah. It's as problematic elements, too, both... In the well, this is really uncomfortable, but also, you know, I think it, I think it's quite good. Yeah, and it gives good examples of how deeply one can go in terms of constructing a setting and all of its residents and their interactions. Mm-hmm. Groovy. So once again, this is Changeling the podcast. We have a uh, our web. You can go to our website at changelingthepodcast.com. and we have a Discord now. Yeah, we have a Discord now. I'm not sure how we're linking to the Discord. We're on. Yeah all over social media we're all over various podcast platforms you can email us at changelingthepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at changelingcast yes and and we're all excited to hear from you huzzah huzzah yeah keep on dreaming and uh don't let the terrible banality of toronto uh, make you forget or anywhere else for that matter toronto especially though yes dream safe